This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. When the sun goes down tonight, volunteers across Metro Denver will count the homeless population, keeping their eyes peeled for folks living in tents beneath underpasses in cars. This is an annual census. They'll do this in seven metro counties, including Douglas, which is both suburban and rural. Think Parker, Lone Tree, Castle Rock, Sedalia. Dugco is also routinely listed as one of the wealthiest counties in America. And we wondered what homelessness looks like in the suburbs. Rand Clark joins me. He heads community services for Doug Coe. He'll be out counting tonight. And Rand, welcome to the program. Ah, good morning. This How will, are you? I'm good. This will be your sixth count. When you find homeless people in Douglas County, where do you tend to find them and in, in what conditions? Well, you know, they really are, are in a variety of conditions. Actually, most of the folks we find that don't have safe and stable housing are folks that are living with their friends, their family, their neighbors. Something happens and... Um, uh, friends from a kid's soccer team or a, a class member or a, a, just somebody from across the street says, hey, come and live with us. We have a number of folks that, that couch surf that are literally not outside homeless, but that don't have that regular, safe, stable housing. We also have... Yeah, will they be a part of the count? That seems like a difficult thing to count. It is a very difficult thing to count. Uh, we do try to include them. Uh, the The organization that, that calls for this count, they don't fit their definition of homeless, huh. but it's certainly what homelessness looks like in our community. Uh, but the ones tonight that we're specifically looking for those that um, might be staying in hotels on hotel vouchers, uh, those that are staying in our church-based shelter. We'll also find people parked outside in their cars, sleeping in their cars, especially on a night like tonight, which is supposed to be warmer. Um, We'll see many folks that might be parking. We certainly see some folks camping. Don't have the obvious on the streets, on the street corner homelessness that we see in other metro or urban areas. But uh, we certainly will find folks tonight that don't have that safe and stable place to live. And when people are spending the night in their cars, where do they tend to park out of curiosity? Well, I'm not going to tell you where we like it's their home and we like to keep that somewhat confidential. But, you know, it's it's in places that are are less conspicuous to the eye. Right. Uh-huh. It's folks that, you know, they they don't want to be bothered and woken up at night. And so they're trying to stay out of the way. They're trying to stay safe and they're trying to stay in places where um, they know that they can park their car safely, that they can get a little bit of a rest uh, before the day tomorrow and, and wake back up. Tell me about an encounter from a previous count. What What is it like being out there and do you have conversations Oh, yeah. You know, I remember it was a couple of years ago, uh, ran into an older gentleman. He was in his 60s and um, didn't have a place to stay. He was kind of back and forth between a trailer that a guy would let him park on his parking lot and his on his property. And in his car, we encountered him parked uh, one evening and got to talking with him. You could tell it was one of those cold, snowy nights and you could see that the car was on and he was sleeping inside of there. And I think the thing that I was reminded of, is, of when I met him was that he had a lot of, um, he had a heart condition. And one of the hardest things was sleeping outside, um, eating food from food banks that might be high in sodium that weren't necessarily what his doctor wanted him to see, wanted him to eat for his heart condition. Um, but it was a matter of how he's going to survive, how he's going to stay safe, how he's going to stay warm. And so we tried to get him connected with, with all kinds of good stuff uh, to try and make sure that not only he was safe, but then we could also look at some of those other things that were concerning for him. This is an opportunity not just to count those who are homeless in the metro area, but to connect with them and perhaps find services that could help them. So he was uh, spending the nights in his car and, and keeping the car running for warmth. Uh, th- that can't be cheap, I suppose. No, it's certainly, certainly not cheap. And so what it does is the little bit of resources he does have, he has to spend on his car, keeping it warm, keeping it running, keeping it operational. And he can't 
spend that money on the type of food, for instance, that he really needed to keep his heart healthy, mm. um, given the, given the high sodium and some of the other things that he would often find in the food that he was donated or that he was given. Douglas County has one of the highest median incomes in the country. Help us square that with what you've just told us about homelessness there. Well, certainly it's homelessness is not out in front of us. It's more hidden in our community. Uh, but there's a certain portion and, and a population that we have in our community that really struggles to to survive, struggles to to live. Maybe they're living paycheck for paycheck. One of the key sort of data points that I always love to talk about is um, in order to afford a median two-bedroom apartment, so just a middle-of-the-road two-bedroom apartment in our community, your family has to make upwards of $25, $26 an hour in order to make that affordable. Well, if you're a single mom, that's a that's a tough that's a tough gig. If well you above the minimum wage. Well above even, minimum wage. Even increased. Yeah, and and you know, even those that 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 we do get to connect with and we do start job training, we have to look at, it takes time, right? It takes time to get the skills necessary, the things needed in order to get that job that sustains housing. And so what that means is we have a lot of folks in our community by our best guess, 20 to 30,000 people maybe that are kind of on that edge, living paycheck to paycheck, that any little thing like a health problem or a car accident or anything unforeseen can really send them over that edge where their housing becomes less stable, where they really have to then look at priorities and and maybe might end up becoming homeless. 20 to 30,000 people in Douglas County who are on the edge, if you will, and might up end up in the scenario you've described, couch surfing, going uh, into a, a friend's house or a neighbor's house, something like that. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And ahead of the homeless count across Metro Denver that begins tonight, we are speaking with Rand Clark about suburban homelessness, uh, specifically in his county, Douglas County. And uh, you know, noted just earlier that you have uh, a church network of shelters And this is a fairly recent phenomenon in Douglas County. There are no, I suppose, sort of permanent shelters in the county. No, no, no permanent shelters for homelessness. We do have one for domestic violence. But uh, just last year, a group of eight churches began to open their doors on a nightly basis during the winter months from November through March. Every night, um, different churches open. So it's a sort of rolling shelter. Yeah, it's a rolling shelter. It rotates around our community. And uh, they uh, open their doors to women and, and women with children who might be experiencing homelessness. It uh, was a great service to our community, something that happened for the first time last year. And and then again, this year is happening as well. We're excited about that partnership. And why that population, women and children? It seems that that would make it difficult for coupled families and, and men. Yeah. Well, we had to start somewhere first off, right? You've got to eat the proverbial elephant one, you know, one bite at a time. And we wanted to start there. But what it also really allowed us to do was take some of our other resources, which has been primarily over time our um, our hotel vouchers that are provided through a number of other partners and nonprofit really focus those towards men and families with men and then put our women and children in our churches. So it really was a coordinated effort, not just from our church's perspective, but as a whole community through all of our different nonprofits to sort of look at what some of the solutions could be. And then we hope as time goes on to be able to expand as as more resources become available, as more churches join in the partnership. Uh, but we had to start somewhere and the churches decided that that's where they really wanted to invest their resources. Creating this winter shelter network. I do want to put homelessness in Douglas County into perspective here, some numbers. I think using last year's count uh, in Denver County, there were more than 3,000 people on the streets and in shelters. 600 in Boulder County, 
In Douglas County, 45. Yes. So comparatively, it's much smaller. Uh, but commensurately, your shelter network reflects that. And, and I wonder in what direction you see homelessness heading in Douglas County. Yeah, let me tell us. in the suburbs in general. Yeah, let me tell us one more number about you, though. So if we look at our whole winter season from November to March, we served 156 individuals. So, yes, it's not the soap and the skies, size and the scale of some of the other metro communities, but in, in my world, it's more than one, right? And so I'm called to help those in my community as long as they need help. And, and when it's more than one, it's one. As for where we see it headed, you know, it has its ups and downs. It has its peaks and valleys. There's a lot of things that we can't control uh, that relate to it. Just something simple tonight, like the weather tonight, is supposed to be very warm. That will change our count than, say, if next year it's snowing. In my experience over the six years, just little things like weather make that count go up and down. And then at a size of 45, you know, we have one more family of six tonight. And all of a sudden that's a, you know, 15% increase when really it's one family of six. And so, uh, it, it's hard to tell exactly, uh, where, where we're headed. I am not in the prediction business. I'm in the, I'm in the business of serving those that are in front of me that are homeless tonight. And you'll be out counting tonight. Rand, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. Rand Clark leads community services in Douglas County. He'll take part in a metro-wide homeless count that starts at sundown. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. There's a good chance you've lost something very valuable in the last few years, like your social security number, credit card information, even details from your tax return. Just think of all the data breaches there have been lately. Target, Equifax, Home Depot, Yahoo, LinkedIn, Uber. Things may get worse before they get better, in part because there's a serious shortage of people who can stop cyber threats. The shortage is even worse among women in those jobs. But Colorado has a new program to get young women interested in cybersecurity. I am joined now by the state's chief information security officer. That is Debbie Blythe and 17-year-old Shreya Nalapati of Highlands Ranch, who has competed in national contests for students interested in cybersecurity. And welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you We're so excited much to be us. here. So, Shreya, I understand you got interested in this field because you were hacked. Yes. Tell me about that. So, basically, um, it was my freshman year of high school, and I was just visiting a regular website, one of my school websites. And what happened was, suddenly, like, this message pops up saying, we have all your files encrypted, and you need to pay money for us to get your files back. It was like they were being held hostage. Yes. Yeah. And so I was freaking out. And I just remember how hopeless and helpless I was feeling because someone like halfway across the world in Germany had all access to all of my files and had information about my identity. And so I was so scared. I ended up paying the amount of money. How much was it? It was about $2,000. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I know. It was a lot of money. I imagine yeah. your parents kicked in. Yeah, so. Oh, yeah, definitely. Because at that point, none of us really had a lot of knowledge about cybersecurity. So when we uh, w- when this first happened, I guess we were all so freaked out that we decided to do whatever it took to get our files back. What kind of files were there that you were so desperate to get back? So um, files included like important school documents, but also important financial information and like my social security 
number and all of those important like documents were all loaded on a file in my desktop. So you paid the $2,000 and did you get the files unencrypted? Mm, actually, no, we did not. We were unfortunate enough that they took advantage of us and didn't end up giving back our files. Oh my gosh, you must have been so frustrated. Yeah, I was frustrated and also helpless. Like, it's so scary when you hear that automated voice come on the computer saying that they have access to all of your files. And so this was a pivotal moment in your life. You became interested then in cybersecurity after that. Yes. Yeah, so from there I joined the FBLA, Future Business Leaders of America, competition in cybersecurity. You are a high school senior now. Mm -hmm. As a freshman, you went to Chicago for a national cybersecurity contest. 2,000 people competed. How many of them were young women like yourself? 20. 20 girls. So you and 19 others. Yes. How did you place? I placed good. Uh, (laughs) I placed well, actually. So I placed top 15 in the nation. Top 15 in the nation? Yes. In these contests, I understand you deal with simulated breaches, simulated attacks, What does it look like? Give me a sense. So uh, what they would do is they'd give you an example of, say, uh, forensics investigations. So part of cybersecurity is forensic security. So they'll ask you what kind of software you would need to use in order to make sure that you can access this perpetrator's files without touching any of the actual data. So they'll give you a multiple choice options. That is to say, when you say forensic, uh, really finding out who's responsible And seeing if you can access their information. Yes, exactly. Why do you think so few young women are interested in cybersecurity? Well, I think that's because there's like so many stereotypes surrounding women. And we are we often don't have role models in cybersecurity. There's a preconceived notion that a hacker is or like someone who works in cybersecurity is someone halfway across the world or a guy with a black hood in his mom's basement hacking frantically away at uh, government <laughs> websites. But that's actually not the case. Thanks to role models like Debbie, I'm able to really forge a path in cybersecurity because I see that Debbie and others have forged their some, themselves their path without having any obstacles or surpassing any obstacles they have in their way. Debbie runs Colorado's information security operation. And for some perspective, Debbie Blythe, how, how big is the shortage of workers, male and female, in this field? Let's let's deal with the overall shortage first. So I'm told that right now, and actually, according to a nationwide study, there's something like 348,000 fewer workers, cybersecurity workers, than there are jobs available to be filled. And certainly I know that's the case because as I talk to my own peers in the industry locally, um, we're having a hard time filling the jobs that we have open. No. So these are just jobs waiting to be filled. And the gap is even worse among women. Is that correct? That's right. So when I open jobs um, to be filled, I have so few women that apply. I would love to hire more women. Um, There's just not a lot of women in the cybersecurity workforce. In fact, I'm told that only about 11% of worldwide cybersecurity jobs are held by women. 11%. Uh, Shreya, when you were uh, among so few young women at that competition, did the young men take you seriously? What was that like? So, yeah, so I was actually part of, so I'm so passionate about cybersecurity, and I was actually part of another cybersecurity competition with an almost all-male team. Okay. And what they did is they relegated me to admin work and, like, less important work because I was a female, while they handled more of the technical expertise because they believed that they had more knowledge than me. What did you do in reaction? 
in reaction, what I did was I was so um, disappointed that I actually hired more women or I actually made sure that more women from our school uh, joined the team. And also, um, at one point, I was so fed up, I decided to compete individually just to prove to them and myself that girls have the same technical expertise that men have. You became like a team of one. Yes. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. So there's a new state program that's going to encourage young women to get involved. It's called Girls Go Cyber Starts. And uh, registration actually starts today. I want to be very clear that girls is in the name, the proper name of this. These aren't my words. What are what are you asking young women across the state to do exactly, Debbie? Well, I think this is a tremendous opportunity because any girls between grades 9 and 12 can sign up for this. It's free. Um, and they get the opportunity to you know, kind of poke around, experience cybersecurity, figure out what it means. And they might find within themselves that they either have an aptitude they didn't realize they have, or maybe they have an interest they didn't even realize they had. It's free to do it, and it's only girls competing. So there's really nothing to risk by doing it. So these are like online game simulations, the kind that Shreya was describing? Absolutely. That's correct. So all they need to be able to do this is just a computer and internet connectivity. All right. We'll have information uh, later today at our website, CPR.org. Debbie, what do you see as the biggest challenge for women getting into the field? Well, I think that one of the things that Shreya mentioned is they really do need role models and mentors. I feel like girls um, in high school, let's say, go into a classroom where it's a security class and they look and it's all boys. And then they think, okay, I registered for the wrong class. I'm going to leave and do something else. And so I just feel like if they had maybe a little bit of encouragement and also some role models and mentors, then they would see, oh, yeah, this isn't just for boys. This is something that girls can do too. Did you feel that yourself in this field, Debbie? I think I was very, very fortunate because my father was a big encouragement, both of my parents. Um, and my father was in IT long before IT was even a thing. And so he brought home a home computer even before home computers were normal and, you know, kind of got me into security. And I was really encouraged my whole life that just being female didn't need to hold me back. But I feel like there's a lot of girls that are not in that position. You have some role models as well. Well, Shreya, because your mom, Sumanelapati, is the state's chief information officer. Is that right? Yes. And she always tells me nothing beats hard work. And she keeps reminding me that. But as a procrastinator, I tend to sometimes forget her words. But I do think that the path she forged, especially as a person of color on and a woman on the governor's cabinet, is so important for me. And it really inspires me that so many people and so many executives at the state level are actually women. I gather that uh, both you and your mother learned something with those files uh, on your computer. Mm -hmm. And do you safeguard those more now? Oh, yeah, definitely. So I took it upon myself and to like protect my entire family's um, computer system. So we have all these different softwares like Kaspersky and McAfee. It's a combination of all of these softwares to make sure we really have all our files protected. And you see a career for yourself in this? Oh, definitely, yeah. Yeah, what does that look like, do you think? Um, So there's so many options in cybersecurity. You could work for the government, you could work for the Army and Navy, or you could go into the private sector. So I'm really ambitious and I want to try all three. But I also want to pursue a career in academia. 
Well, thanks to both of you for being with us. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Shreya Nalapati is a senior at Rock Canyon High School in Highlands Ranch. Debbie Blythe is Colorado's chief information security officer. And today the state joins Girls Go Cyber Starts, a national contest for young women interested in cybersecurity. The ski community is mourning the loss of filmmaker Warren Miller. He died last week at age 93. His adventure films no doubt lured people to the Rockies, and they earned him a spot in the Colorado Ski Hall of Fame. Miller's death came as the snow sports industry in Denver met, and we asked a few folks at the trade show what he meant to them. It's a bit of a passing of an era. That's the old school of of skiing, and he brought a lot of fun and joy and recruited millions of people into skiing. What Warren did was kept that classic feel to ski movies, and that's what's wonderful is that everyone who's older and younger can relate to his movies and still enjoy them. We're going to need to find someone, definitely not to fill his shoes, but someone who can kind of take that note and run with it. If you think of like his origins going town to town and narrating the films as it was happening, he was like the ultimate storyteller. That was Dan Chalfont, Brianna Dean, and Andrew Gardner. Our next guest uses even stronger words to describe Warren Miller. Pro skier Chris Anthony of Avon says Miller pretty much defined his existence. They met when Anthony was a kid, and uh, welcome to the program. Thank you. Nice to have you. Uh, Warren Miller was in the Navy during World War II. After he was discharged, he went to college in California and started to experiment with ski films. Uh, His movies have inspired countless skiers and boarders, and you've starred in dozens of Miller's films over the course of decades. Uh, When we reached you to do this interview, you were on the side of a mountain doing runs in his honor. Absolutely. Best place to be, right? He, uh, he, you know, inspired skiing for all of us. He inspired getting outside. He he showed the world um, different locations from a place that, as he always put it, it's always snowing someplace on the planet. Huh. Uh, bring us into your head as you did those runs. I, uh, this this was um, really a way that he wanted to be honored, I understand. You know, he um, I'm sure that he wanted us out on the mountains always. And, and being on the skis, and he always said skiing is uh, the greatest freedom, you know, get people on skis. And uh, it's true. You, you You get out there, you feel the wind against your face, you're, you're out there in the environment, and you're sliding, and, and you're going fast, and it's it's a wonderful sensation, and Warren, obviously, a, a, a big uh, supporter of that, and he wanted to share that with the world, and in a way that he could also continue to get the free lift ticket for himself. <laughs> <laughs> free lift tickets were in it for him, I suppose. He was, he was quite well-known, uh, in the ski community. And I understand actually that his wife hated uh, if he spoke too loudly because people would recognize his voice. You know, it was so distinctive in these films and everyone would, you know, crowd around and, and fanboy and fangirl around him. 
his voice was imprinted in any skier's mind that grew up in the industry. I mean, I my parents took me to the films at City Park at Phipps Auditorium ever since I was just out of a, the crib, I believe. So I will always recognize that voice. You'll hear it. Yeah, if you heard it in the lift line from 100 yards away, you'd know Warren's over there. Yeah, so he has a really distinctive voice. And uh, this is him narrating the opening to his 1984 film, Ski Country, which followed extreme skiers around the world. Make sure your seat belt's on tight because my money belt's on loose. I've hired this helicopter just for us and it can fly 150 miles an hour and climb 1,500 feet a minute. We're going to ski where there's no lift lines and no bad snow either. We're going on a six-month round-the-world ski trip and I'm going to be your guide. I'm Warren Miller. You better hang on tight because here we go. Take me back to when you met Warren Miller. How old were you? Well, the first time I met him was at Phipps Auditorium as a little kid. Met him in the lobby there. Uh, it was a big tradition for everybody to go every fall and see the Warren Miller film. And, and, and hear, hear yeah, him narrate. Yeah, so back then he was there. And he actually uh, went up on stage and did a monologue before he would go off to the side of the stage, sit at a little desk, turn on a light, and then um, had a little tape player as the film would roll, he would narrate it live and fade the music up and down. It was the most remarkable thing. I didn't really understand, you know, so little, the appreciation of it, but it was so magical. And of course, as a little kid, I always wanted to be one of those athletes or one of those skiers someplace skiing in one of his movies. So there's no doubt that he planted a seed for what would become a professional skiing career for you. He definitely uh, inspired me beyond belief as a little kid. You'd leave those movies every fall, and you were just fired up to be out there in the mountains, and your stomach's turning with butterflies. Uh, your parents would hopefully you go to a ski shop the next few days. My parents were very creative. You know, skiing wasn't the most financially easy thing to do, but yeah. my parents fell in love with the sport too. So they, they figured out creative ways, just as Warren did, to make things happen. What do you mean creative ways that he made films? You know, he he always says he was just in search of the free lift ticket. So whether it was living in the parking lot at Sun Valley and just figuring out how to get out on the slopes every day, he was selling shoelaces. Back then you tied your boots up, so he he, he showed, sold shoelaces. But he also, you know, he, he grabbed a cheap camera for 20, you know, $77 his first one, hand wound, went out and shot some basically silent films of people fl- floundering around on the mountain and some beautiful shots and then would basically take it into the day lodge and narrate over that and it was just a great entertainment you can just imagine it almost in black and white back then what was your first film together so um i um actually prior to being able to be in one of his films i actually went to his house a few days or or a few years earlier and knocked on his door and handed him my makeshift resume to ask if I could be in a film. But it wasn't till a couple of years later, because I did well in a competition, that I was asked to get on a plane and go to France. And I, that was my first one. And I skied with two other athletes, uh, Mike Farney and Tom Bowers, and they were mentors as well. But this was truly a dream come true to be able to be in that film. And ni- that, the filming was in 1989. The movie 89. came out in 1990. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are remembering the late ski filmmaker Warren Miller, who died last Wednesday at age 93. And uh, my guest is pro skier Chris Anthony of Avon, who made a number of films with Miller and who is really 
inspired by Miller. Um, as a kid, when he would watch those films, Miller narrating them in real time. Uh, you know, one criticism of Warren Miller is that he might have pushed people to do extreme things in the out-of-doors. Yeah, there was a big movement at about 1989 when the whole extreme word came out and everybody talked about extreme. And we've actually, as an industry, tried to back away from that word and we call it big mountain or adventure scheme. But um, people, what they didn't realize, because he did such a great job of filming the um, the action, the the cameraman that he hired, the the editing. He has the same editor, Kim Schneider, for years and years and years. But they did they don't what the audience never realized because it was so seamlessly done is there's a lot of thought behind these stunts and these locations and the skiers doing what they're doing, and of course the the audience and the, especially the little kids that are modeling after that, you know they don't know the background to it, so they might go out and do some, you know, not so smart things because they were inspired by the movie. And I, I've definitely was one of those little kids and now I've tried to become, you know, a messenger of what takes place behind that scene and be smart about it. So, did Warren Miller ever push you in a place you were uncomfortable with? Absolutely not. I've, I've never once was on a film shoot with any of our cameramen where there wasn't a mutual respect. They, the cameramen basically look up at the at the at our theater basically at the stage of mountains and they go they see what will look beautiful and then they ask you are you comfortable going and doing that can you do something on that slope can you do something here and there's a real mutual respect between the athlete and the cameraman very briefly miller often said if you don't do it this year you'll be one year older when you do so true right you know he he inspired people to uh do things different and go after things. And I, there was one thing I can honestly say that I've heard over 10,000 times now and a few thousand times this week is that Warren changed my life. No, oh. And you're an example of that, Chris Anthony. Thanks for being with us. Absolutely. Thank you. He's the pro skier from Avon, remembering ski filmmaker Warren Miller, who died last Wednesday at age 93. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Republicans in the state legislature say their top priority this year is to fix Colorado's roads without raising taxes. The plan has stirred a debate over which state programs deserve resources over others in the coming decades. CPR's Sam Brash reports. Andy Carcian is with the Colorado Department of Transportation. It's his job to explain to lawmakers what the department needs, so he knows where to find the worst roads in Colorado. And the worst traffic. I think we'll go head down to 270 and get into the belly of the beast. I-270. <laughs> it's a must-see on any tour of Metro Denver's commuter hellscape. The highway runs through Commerce City, connecting I-25 and I-70. We merge in at around 930 and hit traffic immediately. This is a 1950s solution for the amount of traffic we have today. It's just not enough. 
Along the way, Carson points out the narrow shoulders, the worn-out bridges, the potholes. CDOT wants to completely revamp this highway. The project is on a list of priorities for the next decade. All the agency needs is $9 billion. And with people moving to Colorado every day, Carson says CDOT can barely maintain what it already has. For new capacity to build new projects, there needs to be new funding. It's got to come from someplace. The question is where that money should come from. That's a familiar debate at the Capitol. And in his opening day speech this year, Republican Senate President Kevin Grantham brought the issue back. Let's invest in something meaningful, our roads, and benefits will stem from every corner of Colorado in every neighborhood and possibly in every household. All right, here's the Republican plan. Their bill would ask voters to let the state issue over $3 billion in bonds. That would cover a third of CDOT's priority list. Grantham says Colorado can afford those bonds thanks to some unexpected revenue, a windfall from the federal tax overhaul and economic growth. This year we have a surplus. We have the ability to take that money, money that's not allocated anywhere at this point, and put it towards transportation. Democrats and Governor Hickenlooper want some of the extra money to go to transportation, but they also have other priorities. Republicans would have it all go to roads, and to pay for the bonds long-term, their bill commits 10% of state sales taxes over the next 20 years. That's about $300 million a year at this point. Having that in law could mean that next time Colorado hits a recession, budgets have to be cut. And maybe down the road we'll have to make tough decisions. But what have we been doing? We've been making the tough decisions at the expense of transportation. Senate Transportation will come to order. Ms. Shipley, that made the bill's first public hearing a showdown over the state budget. State departments came out against the bill. Christina Rosenthal is with the Department of Corrections, which she says... ...does have pretty significant concerns that this bill would create a level of uncertainty and squeeze our agency's ability to just provide very basic services. Colorado's Department of Higher Education and Human Services made similar arguments. CDOT is neutral. Republican Senator John Cook is a bill sponsor. He called it disconcerting that departments would fight new road funding. They say, hey, we want that money in our general fund, but let's not give it to transportation, even though it's a high priority. Let's give it to someone. Let's give it to us. The approach marks a shift for some Republicans. Last year, many supported a failed attempt to ask voters to increase sales taxes to pay for transportation bonds. Now, rather than grow the budgetary pie, Republicans just want to change how it's cut up and serve a bigger slice to CDOT. Democratic lawmakers like Senator Rachel Zenzinger thinks new taxes are still needed. I don't want to cut education in order to fix our roads. This was kind of a half-baked partisan plan that um, doesn't quite get us there. Those objections could obstruct the plan. Democrats control the House, and if the Republican bill gets there without major changes, expect traffic. Worse than 270 at rush hour. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. In World War II, some American soldiers fought on skis. They were members of the 10th Mountain Division, and they trained at Camp Hale near Leadville. In Congress, there's an effort to make it the country's first national historic landscape. Today, some lesser-known history, that Camp Hale was also a prisoner-of-war camp. 
Yes, the United States held hundreds of thousands of POWs, German, Italian, and Japanese, on its own soil in camps across the country. At Camp Hale, there was an escape plot involving a U.S. soldier who was also a Nazi sympathizer. Paul Herbert writes about this strange story in his book, Treason in the Rockies. Hi, Paul. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for having me on the show. Surely. Before we talk about this Nazi sympathizer named Dale Maple, I want to shed a little light on these POW camps in the U.S. Why would the country bring prisoners across oceans, presumably, instead of leaving them with, I don't know, allies abroad? Primarily to help out Europe. uh, Europe was overwhelmed with the number of prisoners. So as the war moved on, we we brought them over to... uh, to help them out. Okay, shipped them over in in ships or in planes yeah, or shipped what? Shipped them over and and then uh, then they uh, put them on trains and sent them to forty six of the forty eight states. How did uh, Americans feel about this? It was very controversial, especially early on, because of the the fears and and all the unknowns. But it didn't take long before Americans and businesses were actually very much in favor of it because it it, it brought jobs to the communities wherever a camp was established. Uh, buildings had to be built and roads had to be made and people had to be brought in to, to run the job. So it was an economic boom for most of the camps. So you write that there were 400,000 some odd German, Italian and Japanese POWs in captivity in the U.S. And in Colorado, it wasn't just Camp Hale. There was Camp Carson near Colorado Springs, Camp Greeley, Others were in very rural areas. What do you know about life for the POWs in these camps? Well, the, the camps were spread out all throughout the U.S. Originally, there weren't that many, and, but for the labor shortage, for the local farmers and industries to hire uh, these POWs and put them to work, they spread out a lot of uh, what were called side camps. Life for the, the prisoners themselves was pretty good. Early on, they didn't do much. They just sat around the camps and engaged in their hobbies and gardening and whatnot. But, but it didn't take long for the, uh, the U.S., because of the labor shortage, to realize that this is a ready-made labor market. So a, a deal was struck with the Army to hire these prisoners out all throughout the United States in, in virtually every type of job you can imagine, except for anything to deal with the war industry. So they were paid? The United States paid POWs to do work? Yeah, the POWs were paid about 80 cents an hour, officers were paid a little bit more. And and when the prisoners got this pay, they were allowed to keep it in a savings account during the war. And at the end of the war, they were the U.S. paid out $274 million uh, in accumulated collections for these uh, payments that the prisoners had done. Fascinating paychecks for POWs. Okay, to this Nazi th- sympathizer who helped two German POWs escape their Colorado camp, Dale Maple is a fascinating figure. You write that he spoke 20 languages fluently, and you call him in particular a Germanomaniac. Uh, What do you mean? He was a child prodigy uh, in his hometown of San Diego. At a very young age, he was playing concert halls. At at age 15, he performed at the San Diego World's Fair, and then he he attended Harvard. Uh, He got into Harvard as a 17-year-old, and uh, graduated uh, from Harvard University with honors. And although he didn't have any German blood or heritage in his family, over the years, through his love of, of music, he developed a, uh, an admiration and love of all things German, initially because of the German composers. 
And this led him to uh, sympathize with Nazis eventually, I guess. Right, right. Uh, it got him into the whole um, German culture and the, and the Nazi culture. And and when, when he was a student at Harvard, he got himself into quite a bit of publicity. In, in fact, uh, in 1940, October of 1940, uh, while he was a student at Harvard, Time magazine actually did a story about him because he was creating such a stir. And uh, I actually found the, the old issue on eBay, so I, hmm. I know for a fact it's there. Um, he's, he, that was in October 40. He graduated from Harvard in 41. And he joins the army eventually. His Nazi leanings are known. So they assign him to a, quote, special organization, the 620th Engineer General Service Company, which ends up at Camp Hale in Colorado's mountains. What made this organization special? Well, right right after graduating from Harvard, he um, he joined the U.S. Army, and uh, and right away he realized his reputation, uh, which was nationally known, caused him a lot of problems, and and he ended up getting uh, laid off uh, abruptly from a couple jobs. And uh, early on in the army, the the uh, guys like Maple, who were um, disloyal or considered disloyal, were assigned just to the general army ranks. Within a year or two, though the Army realized that uh, it would, might be a good idea to get all these guys, there were roughly uh, 1,200 to 1,500 of them, get them together in one camp huh. so the Army could keep an eye on them. And originally that, that camp was in South Dakota, but by early of 1944 that, that camp had, had been uh, sent out to Camp Hale. But by the way, that, that's not to say by any means that, that all the soldiers at Camp Hale were in this group. This was one small group exactly, exactly. Of, of, the, of all the soldiers at Camp Hale. And Camp Hale is actually probably best known as the training center for the skiing soldiers of the 10th Mountain Division. Right. Again, a totally right. different division. Um, there's a campaign, I'll say, going on right now to make Camp Hale the country's first national historic landscape. So Dale Maple is stationed there. How does he, as an American soldier, make meaningful contact with German prisoners being well, he, he he stationed there with a couple other uh, American soldiers who were considered uh, disloyal. Surprisingly, the the army had placed one of these um, prisoner of war camps, and there were roughly 660 of them throughout the United States. Had placed one of them right next to the uh, the U.S. Army base uh, with it with the Camp Hale soldiers. So uh, Dale Maple could walk a hundred yards away and talk. Huh. Really, to these uh, uh, prisoners of war. Maybe not the wisest yeah. idea to place the disloyal American soldiers, or those at least suspected of being disloyal, right next to the German POWs. It, it, it really is amazing, and there, there, were, there was a lot of uh, comment at the time about how that wasn't a good idea. In uh-huh. fact, on one uh, weekend away from camp, where Maple had a, a weekend leave, he actually snuck into the prisoner war camp next door, put on a prisoner war uniform and spent the weekend among the, the prisoners of war. Huh. And then, then came back the, three days later to his army camp 100 yards away. My guest is Paul Herbert. His new book is called Treason in the Rockies, Nazi sympathizer Dale Maple's POW escape plot. And tell us more about this plot. He helped smuggle out two German soldiers. I think the original plan was bigger, though. Yeah, the original plan was uh, was four or five soldiers and there were going to be two of these U.S. Army soldiers that were going to be involved. But for a number of reasons, it ended up just being Maple. He, he, the disloyal soldiers in this, in this Camp Hale 
they didn't have a lot of the privileges that most Army soldiers had. For example, they were not issued weapons, and, and they were not allowed to own a car. Huh. But Maple went out and bought an old car, a 1934 Rio, and snuck out with two of these uh, prisoners of war and made a mad dash to Mexico. Huh. And it, someday someone's going to make a movie about it, I, I, I suspect. It's, it's almost like a, like a Dumb and Dumber type thing. you got the three guys... <laughs> You know, certainly knowing the laws behind them, and uh, along the way they have uh, two flat tires. The second flat they 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 cannot get fixed, so they they they're driving on the rim, the you know on the way to Mexico before they get caught, and uh, they drive into a ditch at one point, and an off-duty U.S. Customs official sees them, and not knowing who they are or what it's about, because you know it hadn't come over the radio yet, this off-duty customs official actually pushes Maple's Rio out of the ditch with his car. And and then about 10 miles from the Mexican border, uh, Maple and the two uh, prisoners of war run out of gas. And, and uh, they, they are apprehended. Uh, Maple, at first, I think, pretends not to speak English. He, he speaks, or, or when he does, he does so with a, a kind of fake German accent. He, right, he's eventually right. sentenced to death, but was not executed, right? Right, right. When 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 uh, when they ran out of gas ten miles from the Mexican border, they 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 walked into Mexico. They walked the ten miles and then walked a couple miles more. Got picked up by a Mexican customs official who turned them over to the U.S. And um, Maple got court-martialed. They were going to execute him. They were going to hang him. And FDR knocked that down to uh, life in prison. And then um, I believe Truman was uh, knocked it down to ten years in prison. Huh. And uh, Maple ended up spending about six years at Leavenworth and got released in 1950, spent out the rest of his life in uh, obscurity in San Diego. That is Paul Herbert, author of Treason in the Rockies, Nazi sympathizer Dale Maple's POW escape plot. We spoke in late 2016. There's an effort in Congress to turn Camp Hale near Leadville into the country's first national historic landscape. But like the skiing soldiers of World War II, it faces an uphill climb. One of the sponsors, Democratic Senator Michael Bennett of Colorado, calls the current political environment for this challenging. We're going to leave you today with a taste of the Spirituals Project Choir. Around 40 of its members packed into the CPR Performance Studio as the Denver Choir celebrates 20 years of preserving the songs known as Spirituals. Sacred music was created and sung by Africans enslaved in America in the 18th and 19th centuries. And in a special next Monday, we'll share the stories behind these songs and learn how they still resonate today. For choir member Mercedes Torregano, this song, Hear My Prayer, is particularly meaningful. I'm not originally from Denver. I came here 12 years ago, 13 years ago, with the hurricane. Hurricane Katrina. 
And this song speaks to me because of the words and the meaning of the words. He heard my prayers. I always say from below sea level to mile high. Hear My Prayer from the Spirituals Project Choir at the University of Denver. Next week, more on Colorado Matters.